The title of the sermon is a little bit longer than what it says in the bulletin, and that's only because I didn't really want to tell Chad the full length of the title is Conversations and Conversion at the Cross. I didn't think it would fit, so. But I tell you that because those are my two main points. Um, Conversations and Conversion at the Cross. We're going to be in Luke 23, 33 to 43, so you can flip there. I'm just going to give you a brief introduction. All four Gospels include the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus was crucified between two other individuals, two robbers, two criminals. Matthew and Mark's Gospel tells us that there were two robbers crucified with Jesus, one on the right, one on the left. John's Gospel simply mentions the two other men beside Jesus. But this morning we're going to look at Luke's account of the crucifixion and these two criminals as Luke refers to them. The fact that Jesus was crucified between these two robbers, two criminals, was a result, or excuse me, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53 provides several prophetic statements that we see fulfilled in the life of Christ. But specifically in verse 12 it says, Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus was going to die with sinners, which is exactly what took place at Golgotha. So turn with me to Luke 23 and stand. We'll, we'll read together uh, verses 33 to 43, if you're able to stand. I don't know the page in the Pew Bible, but we do have Pew Bibles if you... 1124. 1124. Starting in verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You may be seated. So here in Luke, we see a more detailed account of Jesus, specifically with these two criminals that were crucified beside him. So as I mentioned, the first main point of the sermon is conversations at the cross. So if you're taking notes, it's point number one. And there are four subpoints. So give yourself some room on your page. Verses 33 through 38, conversations at the cross. We're going to look at four statements that we see here in these next six verses. The first statement is from Jesus spoken to God the Father. I title it, A Plea for Forgiveness. A Plea for Forgiveness. That's verse 34, which says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus asks God the Father to forgive those soldiers who just nailed him to the cross. Jesus asks God the Father to forgive those who are watching him die and mock him instead of mourn for him. How do we respond to negative treatment from the lost people in our lives? Do we ask God to forgive them because they don't know what they are doing? How do we view the lost people around us? Do we see them as people who are slaves to their sin? Until God saves them and gives them a new heart, we shouldn't be surprised that their life pattern is bent towards sin. That is the condition of the lost, and they need us to pray for them like Jesus did here. Ask God to save the lost people in your life. Number two, the second statement. I titled it, The Sneering Sarcasm. The Sneering Sarcasm. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. This word sneering caught my attention. I looked it up. It's not that I've never heard the word, but I just wanted a better understanding of its definition. The definition of sneer literally means to contort one's face and speak with scorn and contempt. Another definition said to curl one's lip. These words were not just spoken in a sarcastic tone, but with an absolute disgust when they looked at Jesus hanging on the cross. How pathetic he seemed to them. How they hated him. Contrast these words with Jesus' words we just read. No comparison. The third statement titled is The Mocking Soldiers. 
receive from the soldiers as they mocked him in verses 36 and 37. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. The soldiers didn't just mock Jesus verbally. They tried to give him the sour wine. They gambled over his garments. They were completely cruel to our Savior as he was nailed to that cross. No respect for a dying man. But again, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. What a contrast. The fourth statement came from a sign. No one said it. It was inscripted on a sign that was above Jesus on the cross. And it said, This is the King of the Jews. Now to better understand this, we need to flip over to John 19. John 19, we're going to look at 19 to 22 briefly. John 19, 19, starting there, says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So Pilate is the one, obviously sovereignly through God, responsible for what the sign said in exactly the way it was phrased. He knew it would displease the Jewish leaders, but that's why he chose to phrase it that way. See, Pilate had been manipulated into this crucifixion because the Jews threatened to go to Caesar. And if they didn't, if they didn't crucify Jesus, he was probably going to lose his job or his life. So I think Pilate was frustrated, and he just wanted to get one more dig in on the Jews. And so he wrote the sign in such a way that he knew they would just be displeased with it. However... However, Pilate meant it. The irony is that we know the rest of the story, and we know that Jesus was and is, in fact, the king of the Jews. He was their Messiah, but they were too blind to see it. Point number two conversion at the cross. Verses 39 to 43. So, conversion at the cross. There are also four subpoints here if you're taking notes. At some point during the crucifixion, one of these criminals experienced a radical heart change that we see in verses 39 to 43. So let's start in verse 39 with the first criminal because he's the one who begins the conversation. One of the criminals who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
Hurling abuse is another way to say blaspheming. <coughs> Did he truly believe that Jesus was the Christ and wanted everyone to see that Jesus was in fact the Messiah by coming down off the cross? Or was he just looking for an escape from certain death on the cross? The fact that Scripture tells us that he was hurling abuse and blaspheming gives us a little insight into his heart condition. But let's contrast this first criminal statement with the second criminal by looking at four important truths that we learn about this second criminal's faith. Starting in verse 40. It says, But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So point number one, Jesus is God and I fear him. That's the first truth that we learn about the second criminal, about his understanding, about his faith. The second criminal rebukes the first criminal for his blasphemous comments. But to truly appreciate this rebuke, we need to look at Matthew 27, 44. This is the parallel passage in Matthew. Matthew 27, 44 says, The robbers, robbers, plural, who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. It says robbers, plural. Both robbers were guilty of this sin against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This second criminal goes from participating in the blasphemy to rebuking the blasphemy. Think with me, if you will, go back to a time in your life before you knew the Lord. Were there activities that you actively participated in, but now, with the right understanding of who God is, and a repentant heart, that you went from a participant to a rebuker of the same activities? Most of you who are born again and and are old enough that you spent maybe some of your adulthood unsaved could probably think to some specific things in your life like that. It's the old self versus the new self example, right? Ephesians 4, 20 to 24 says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, old self and new self, a radical change, a 180, That's what happened in this criminal's heart. This criminal rebukes these blasphemous comments to Jesus. And at the same time, he is acknowledging the deity of Jesus Christ. 
He says, do you not fear God? Jesus is God. So, he understands that Jesus is God and I fear him. That's the first truth we learn. The second truth we learn about this second criminal is found in verse 41. I am a sinner. Look what it says. He tells the other criminal, and we, indeed, both you and I, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He acknowledges that this sentence of crucifixion was what he and the other criminal deserved for their crimes. Maybe he was familiar with Psalm 32. Psalm 32 was a psalm of David. Psalm uh, verses 1 through 5 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Maybe he recalled that psalm that he heard as a child. We don't know. But he acknowledges his sin to Jesus and this other criminal. The third thing that we see is that he believes Jesus was sinless. The rest of verse 41, he goes on to say, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. This fact is important because Jesus could not be the Son of God if he was a sinner. And that's what Jesus claims. This is also important because the shed blood of Jesus could not redeem anyone unless he was the sinless Lamb of God. The perfect sacrifice. 1 Peter 18 and 19 tells us, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So he recognized that Jesus was sinless. Lastly, the fourth thing that we, we learn about the second criminal's faith is he believed Jesus was king and he was going to answer to him. Look at verse 42. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who has a kingdom but a king? This criminal recognized that the crucifixion was not the end for Jesus or himself, for that matter. Because he asks Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. He had a better understanding 
of where Jesus was going after the cross than the disciples did at this point. This criminal also knew that after death, he was going to have to stand before Jesus in his kingdom. You see, according to Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi, he tells us that every person who has ever lived, regardless of what their opinion is or was of Jesus Christ, will one day bow a knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So we see four truths from the second criminal that he makes clear and professes verbally on the cross. One, Jesus is God and I fear him. Two, I am a sinner. Three, Jesus is sinless. And fourth, Jesus is king and I will answer to him. Well, Jesus responds to this second criminal in verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus grants this criminal salvation. Right there on the cross, moments before both of them, all three of them die. Can you imagine how relieved and comforted that man must have felt? Even though he was going through an agonizing death on the cross beside Jesus, to have Jesus tell him that you're going to be with me in paradise today? That's amazing. What can we learn from this conversion at the cross? Two things I want to share with you that I learned... There may be others. Number one, salvation is by faith alone. Did this criminal need to get baptized before going to paradise with Jesus? No, he did not. Did this criminal need to add some works to his faith in Christ to be saved? No, he did not. Did this criminal's proverbial scale of good deeds outweigh his bad deeds? I would probably say no. He didn't have the opportunity to do anything other than profess that Jesus is God and I fear him. I am a sinner. Jesus is sinless. And Jesus is a king. And I will answer to him. Earlier in the service, we read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. I stand here this morning to tell you that salvation is by faith alone, and we cannot add anything to its validity or security by anything we do. And any attempt to tack things onto our salvation diminishes the work that Jesus did on the cross. So, salvation is by faith alone. That's the first thing we learn. Number two, this may seem a little obvious, but some people will respond to the gospel and some will not. 
both of these criminals essentially wanted the same thing. Salvation. The first criminal, who was hurling abuse at Jesus, wanted to be saved from the horrible execution that he was enduring. Which is totally understandable. But the main difference between them is that the first criminal was not at all repentant. Even if Jesus was planning to jump off the cross in some miraculous demonstration of his deity, this criminal believed that he deserved to be saved by Jesus. Right? Save yourself and us. This kind of salvation seeking leads to a false conversion because it's void of repentance. Some people respond to the gospel and some people reject the gospel. This seems too obvious, but it's a mysterious reality. These two criminals are a perfect example. They both witnessed the sacrificial death of the Son of God on the cross, the same distance apart. They both heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Sadly, some people will reject the good news of the gospel. But praise the Lord that some will respond to the call and repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Some will believe and we don't know who they are. They could be your father. They could be your mother. Your brother. Your sister. Your son. Your daughter. Your co-worker. Your neighbor. Or someone you haven't even met. Be ready to share the gospel. Preach the word, as Paul says, in season and out of season. In 2 Timothy 4.2. Church family, be encouraged this morning that some will respond to the gospel. And let that motivate us to have compassion on the lost people around us who are searching for the truth that you and I carry in our hearts. Salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone. And we, as we see demonstrated by the conversion of this criminal, <coughs> if Jesus promised this convicted, guilty criminal that today he would be with him in paradise, he can save any lost soul here today who calls out to him in the same manner of repentance. Romans 10, 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that if there's anyone here today who is unsure of their eternal destination, that the Holy Spirit would do a work in their hearts right now. Help them to see your Son just as this criminal on the cross did. 
help them to recognize themselves as sinners who need a Savior. Thank you for sending your only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sins. Please give us opportunities and the courage to share the gospel to the lost. We ask this in your name. Amen. Stand with me. We'll uh, conclude by singing uh, 182, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. 182.